It's time for episode 95 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, July 15th, 2015. Clockwise, four people, four technology topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the tech podcast that may or may not be a planet. I'm your co-host, Dan Morin, and I'm joined across the vast swaths of the internet, of interstellar internet space, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Jason. I'll respond in four and a half hours. This is going to be a long episode. And that's all for Clockwise. <laughs> As always, we are joined also by two fantastic guests. To my left is Giant Space Cat's own Brianna Wu. Hi, Brianna. What's crackalackin'? And to my left, it is uh, Shelly Brisbane, who is uh, one of the hosts of the uh, Mac Accessibility Podcast and my former coworker from back in the Mac user days. Hi, Shelly. Welcome back. Howdy. Delighted to be here as always. Clockwise is the is the show for 95 episodes now. We've done four topics in about 30 minutes. Today, we're going to break that. No, no. <laughs> Since you introduced the show, why don't you give us our first topic? I would love to give you our first topic. So Comcast announced earlier this week that they are launching a web-based streaming TV service, which sounds insane. Um, but essentially the idea is for 15 bucks a month, if you already have Comcast internet, but you don't have cable, you can essentially sign up and get sort of a, a, a Sling TV-like service where you can get your, your t- TV channels or some subset of them uh, delivered to you over the web. So my question is, is this the smart business picking up on sort of, you know, where the trend is heading? Or is this just sort of flailing like, oh, us too, us too, we can totally do that. What are your thoughts and does such a service potentially interest you, Bree? We saw this years ago how we were moving more and more towards streaming. I think you've seen HBO Go and you know, Netflix really take over the market. So I, I really interpret this as a me too. Maybe Comcast will be able to get their act together and compete with um, you know content on that level. But I think given their track record, it's very unlikely. You know, what do, what do they say about, uh, I'm not a gambler, but don't they say the house always wins? That's how I feel about the, this Comcast thing. It's like, they've got the pipe. All, all the people who cut who are cord cutters still need to be on the internet. And we haven't gotten to the point yet where I think people would uh, trade in their, uh, their broadband internet for just using wireless, given the cost of wireless internet and the bandwidth caps. And so, you know, Comcast, if they're your broadband monopoly in your local area, then they're going to get their money one way or another if you want to watch. TV. You're going to have to pay it. You can pay it on, on an IP service. You can pay it on a TV service. They're actually using their bundles to make it cheaper to use the TV service. But I think in the end, this is what this really is, is just part of the transitional step to making all television IP based, uh, get the old TV technology out of the equation. And then, yeah, people may have more choices about uh, what they get and what they don't get or what their TV providers are. But the house always wins. In the end, your broadband provider is going to want to get money and your TV providers are going to want to get money and that money's got to come from somewhere and that's your wallet. I feel like that makes sense. I also feel like it's kind of a giant focus group and let's throw something at the wall and see what sticks. And they also get to collect money from their existing customers. So that will make them happy because people are already attuned to buying services like Netflix and other things that charge them a relatively small monthly fee for content. So Comcast is jumping in this water as well. And it'll be interesting to see to me whether the lineup of channels, which is relatively small right now, evolves, whether they try to do something uh, with sports, because that is definitely not part of what they're doing now. I'm not all that interested in it because I hate Comcast as much as everybody else, even though they're not a provider in my area. But at the same time, I feel like there are people who 
uh, might become customers by default because their knowledge of cord cutting off uh, options is perhaps not as uh, sophisticated. And so they'll grab it because they're already getting services from Comcast. It's like, oh, sure, I'll buy another thing and maybe I'll get a few channels that are in, within an interface that I'm already comfortable with. And so I don't know. It, we'll see. But it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like a, a great step forward for them. It just feels like doing something they feel like they need to do in order to uh, play in the environment that we're in today. Yeah, I keep going back and forth on whether this is something that's actually just really clever of them because, as Jason said, you know, there's a good opportunity to basically get some money out of people one way or another. Um, and like Shelley's saying, it's, it appeals to their built-in customer base, right? Um, and at the same time, I think they've realized that there is a, a, a lot of challenge coming from these upstarts and these new, new players like Hulu um, or, or having the networks basically walk around the cable companies and deal directly with technology companies, which is, I think, what Apple's aiming for. So I'm intrigued by this, especially because as a price sort of uh, offering, it's 15 bucks a month and it includes HBO, which itself is 15 bucks a month. So that's actually not terrible as deals go. Uh, but I think the biggest question, sort of the elephant in the room, is what Apple's going to do. Because if Apple, you know, rolls out a service that works more seamlessly with its technology, that's much more appealing. And the biggest drawback for the Comcast uh, setup, from what I can tell, is you can't you can't watch it on your TV. You have to watch it on your computer. Now you could do some workarounds and fancy stuff to probably get that on your TV, whether it means AirPlay or whatever. But uh, that strikes me as a stupid, uh, short-sighted move on Comcast part, just living up to exactly what I expect from Comcast. So <laughs> it's piloted in Boston later this summer. So I'm intrigued. Maybe I'll check it out. We'll see how it goes. And that's my topic. Brianna, What's your topic today? My topic this week is the ongoing drama-rama with Reddit. Um, I have lots of thoughts about it, but before I get to them, I kind of want to pass it over to everyone else and kind of feel uh, what you guys are thinking. The big news to come out last night is one of the former um, founders of Reddit kind of leaked a bunch of secrets um, saying he realized in doing this he would probably never be a CEO of a major company again, um, kind of talking about how Ellen Powell was ironically the last line of defense for people that wanted open speech at Reddit. So I'm curious what everyone else thinks about this. As somebody who was in charge of the uh, a, a forum, right, the Macworld forums that were attached to Macworld for many years, these communities can be great and they can be incredibly um, awful and mean. And people within them can be that way. And depending on how the community is managed, communities can end up being generally quite good or generally quite awful um, all with, the, with that spectrum of people inside it. But on average, if you, if you set some good rules and, and promote good behavior and kick out the bad actors, you can, uh, you can have a pretty decent community. And when you don't provide a whole lot of supervision, it will usually go to the worst in the end, the, the good people will leave driven out by the, the bad people. I've seen it happen time and again on the Internet. I try to I try to take that small uh, experience that I had and then imagine a site that is essentially a forum for everybody in the entire Internet. And I can't even imagine. And that's what Reddit is. It's a whole bunch of little versions of, of that uh, then writ large. And uh, so it's tough. It's a tough thing. It's a mess. It was always going to be a mess. Um I think the reality is that Reddit as a company is trying to keep the lights on technically. But what I learned is, you know, Macworld as a company, we need to keep the 
message board software running so that there was a place. But we couldn't control what happened at that place because it really was the people who make the community. And this is the this is the problem with a, a company like Reddit is if Reddit wants to make change to make what they think is make Reddit better or make it a better company, what you're going to end up with is a moment where the community will either say, okay, we'll go along with change or say, we're out of here. And if if what Reddit needs to do as a company is push the community further than the community is willing to go, they'll just leave. And they will. They will leave and go somewhere else. Now, maybe that makes Reddit a better product because the people who are leaving are not people that Reddit wants to serve. That's possible. The only downside to that is what if Reddit's business really um, depends on those people who they essentially, you know, they don't want to lose them, but they want them to behave better. And if that's impossible, then uh, yikes. (laughs) I I think what we've seen the last couple of weeks is yikes with Reddit. Shelly? Well, I had forgotten that Reddit was owned by Condé Nast, which sort of blew my mind because my I'm not a Redditor either, and my interaction with Reddit had always been, I, I, knew, I knew it was corporately owned, and but I didn't really have the sense of, oh yeah, there's an old media company, who, which apparently in general has kept its hands off. The, the controversy and all the flare-ups between current and former and current former people at Reddit are all Silicon Valley people and people who are not as connected directly with the corporate entity that owns it. However, it's this fundamental tension between a corporate entity that is making a business and a community of communities of people, all of whom prize the freedom that they have on Reddit to say what they want and have become internet trolls to some extent. Obviously, there are probably a lot of great places inside Reddit where you can participate in communities. And I love communities and have run and participated in small communities of interest that have managed to be remain civil places because the interest is narrowly focused. And the problem that Reddit has is it is a community of communities and there is so little uh, ability to uh, control and structure it that people will accept that it seemed like it was inevitably going to run aground, whether it was going to run aground in in terms of a a business uh, perspective or whether it was going to be through the weight of all the the trolls and the, the problems with the community. And I don't have enough knowledge to sort of pick apart the inside the business stuff and, you know, so-and-so got fired and so-and-so got was mad and so-and-so left and all that stuff. That seems to me really separate from the huge problem that Reddit has in terms of uh, communities that are uh, unfortunately ma- bad, negative places and where behavior, uh, where, where people are acting out and, and doing things that we don't want them to do and speaking in ways that we don't want them to speak. However, that sounds dangerously close to uh, restricting people's free speech. And I don't know that free speech in the way that Redditors expect and understand it is uh, necessarily compatible with uh, being owned by a corporate overlord. However, I feel like it's two separate problems. The, The technical and the personnel problems that Reddit has may not be as closely tied to the rambunctiousness of the community as some people from the outside would necessarily think. Uh, yeah, I, I I confess I haven't been following this issue super closely, but I think that, you know, Reddit is it's kind of a microcosm of the whole Internet, right? From the bad to the good, you know, that at its best, it is a place where you can create a community of like minded people who really are interested in discussing a particular subject and at its worst. It's kind of the same thing, just with really terrible subjects. Um, and so 
Yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is. The free speech thing, I think, is always an interesting argument because we used to deal with this all the time at, at Macworld, as I think Jason was alluding to, when we managed the communities there and people would go off about, how can you restrict my right to say something? It's like, no, nah, we're not the government. We're not, we don't, we're not required to give you a platform to spew things that are hateful and objectionable. That's, that's a policy thing, yep. not a legal thing. You can go to your own site or go to Twitter or Facebook and spew whatever you want, but we don't have to let you do it here. Um, so as far as, you know, Reddit, I think its its policies were friendly enough to allow those kinds of communities to grow up there. But at the same time, as Shelley, I think, was alluding to that, it struck me as setting sort of a, a you know, crash course at some point with reality. So I, I don't know as far as, you know, all that goes, whether whether Reddit is is bound to just sort of tank after this. And people, as Jason said, will we'll leave and jump ship and go to the different community if Reddit starts cracking down on that. Um, but at the same time, you know, it would be a shame to see uh, something tanked by, you know, people who are just very vocal people about certain terrible subjects. So I don't know that I know enough to be able to speak authoritatively about the subject. Let's just send them all to the moon. <laughs> I actually think the media is getting it completely wrong in covering this story. I think it's really tempting to cover it as a, an open speech issue. Um, and I think it's really tempting to cover this story. It's like, oh my God, look at Ellen Powell. She's like being harassed out of her company. Aren't all these forces terrible? To me, the real story going on here is Reddit is the 10th most visited site on the entire internet and does not have a revenue stream that is commensurate with that. <laughs> and you know, they're, fun they're finding a fundamental problem, which is bringing in advertisers um, and, you know, they look at some of these forums like fat people hate, which, you know, it's disastrous for your brand to be associated with that. So to me, I think the, the open speech question is a bit of a red herring. It's how does Reddit kind of grow as a business? So, um, you know, I think at the core, I think that Reddit is really at a crossroads. And, you know, the board is telling it one thing and, you know, the internal company culture that wants another. What I am hearing from my friends that work inside the company is Reddit is fundamentally broken. Something that uh, the media is not really covered enough, in my opinion, is talking about the struggle over moderator tools. Uh, when I have moderated Reddit forums before, the tools suck. There's, there's no nice way to say it. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is there's no ship date to get these tools out, to get them fixed. The engineering department's pulled in five different directions by internal political struggles. Um, you know, when you see, like, the head of, uh, you know, someone coming from Facebook and their lead engineer quitting because she says the, the culture and internal processes are too broken to deliver anything that the board is promising, that is a really big problem. So, yeah, while I think open speech is an interesting issue, I think the more interesting question is, is Reddit a viable business? Will it be there in five years? And I think the truth is, if they don't get strong leadership in there that can make these changes without ripping the community to, to shreds in the process, I think it's toast. And, you know, like, I think Ellen Powell was someone who my honest appraisal, and this is Ellen Powell, the businesswoman, and not, you know, Ellen Powell, the kind of feminist figure. You know, she, the media covers her like she's some, um, you know, feminist polemicist, and she's not. 
She is a really smart, savvy, pragmatic business leader. And I think she was Reddit's best shot to have um, their, their processes fixed in a way that would save the culture of the company. And I think, sadly, they turned on her, and I think it's Reddit's loss. And, you know, I do not believe they will be the templates as in sight five years from now. All right. Uh, great conversation. We're going to have uh, two more topics. But first, it's halftime. I have to tell you about our halftime sponsor. This episode of Clockwise brought to you by Backblaze. Let's face it. Uh, nobody likes to talk about death, but it's inevitable your computer's hard drive will die. In fact, Brianna's uh, time machine drive may have died today. It did. It did. <laughs> so you should protect your data. Time machine backups are good. Local backups are good. Offline backups far away from your house are also good. Backblaze can give that for you. It's online backup for all your computer's data, all your music, photos, movies, videos, presentations, work documents. Everything is saved up in the cloud, backed up in case something bad happens to your device at home. If some, In case something bad happens to your home, you've got access to all your files anytime. In fact, I've used this because I've forgotten a copy files from my iMac at home and then gone on a trip and thought, oh God, that file is on my desktop and I need it. Well, you know what you do? You can launch the Backblaze app or even on on the iPhone or iPad or an Android device, you can call up your Backblaze backup and get that file from the backup and save yourself, which is what I did. So computers can crash and do crash. Hard drives will always fail. Your computer can get stolen. There can be natural disasters. If you're a Backblaze customer, you just don't need to worry. Your data is secure. Backblaze stores more than 150 petabytes of data. That is a lot of data. That is more data uh, than you could possibly transmit from Pluto. And has restored over 10 billion files for its customers. If any reason you need your files in a hurry, you can even call them and they'll mail you a hard drive with all your files on it. No add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. You can go get a free, no credit card required trial at backblaze.com slash clockwise. And then it's just $5 per month per computer. Super simple to figure out for unlimited fast online backup thank you so much to backblaze for being the clockwise halftime sponsor and supporting relay fm okay halftime's over topic number three is for me uh the uh as we were preparing to record this episode the new ipod touch came out from apple it has an a8 processor and the m8 co- motion co processor so basically it's it's based largely it doesn't have touch id and apple pay but it's largely the same technology that drives the iphone 6 and 6 plus uh, which makes me ask the question, makes me wonder uh, if there's an, a, a tiny four-inch screen A8 iPod Touch, does that mean we might get a, a four-inch iPhone in the fall in the style of the iPhone 5 uh, that has all the modern conveniences of the iPhone 6? And if there is a modern four-inch iPhone this fall, would you prefer that to the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus sizes? I am the only iPod Touch fangirl in the universe. <laughs> we found her. I, just, I want you to all know that I'm the one, and they, they make all these for me. They, they called and said, what color would you like? And it's being delivered soon. Uh, I, uh, I'm excited to see the update. I'll just say that. Um, I know you all think that's weird, and that's okay. Uh, as, as far as, I'm, I'm super glad also that the, the, the technology is moving forward in terms of the smaller devices. I don't know. It just seems to me that the iPhone would stick to more of an iPhone 5 base and update from that point of view. I mean, clearly they've got the cost down so that they can do the newer processors and the newer, there's a new camera and the iPod Touch and all of that. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be a follow-on to what iPod Touch is doing. I am an iPod uh, 
I am an iPhone 6 owner and was a little skeptical, actually, when I got the larger screen device that I would like it. I kind of like the 5S form factor, and uh, I have been converted, and I like the 6, and I don't think I would go back, given the choice and the, the upgrade Given the choice and uh, the ability to get out of a contract, I probably would not go back to a smaller phone. Uh, and I don't know that that size at this point makes all of that much sense for a phone. I feel like people in general are becoming accustomed to larger phones, and especially as the phone becomes a more important device in their life and they're putting more video on it and trying to do more actual work on the phone. It just seems like uh, that size screen has uh, gone the way of the dodo, as it were, for phones. But I think it's great that the iPod Touch still has a little bit of life in it, and I hope that those improved processors find their way into a iPhone 5-style phone this fall. I know a lot of people who were pretty happy with the iPhone 5, 5S form factor, um, especially I think a lot of women I know who find that the 6 and 6 Plus are just too large to put in any of the tiny, tiny pockets that, that are put on their clothes. So I, I know a lot of people who I think would prefer that or at least like the option. I also am curious to know what you could do. You know, Apple's spent so much time making things smaller and thinner. You could, uh, you know, a foreign, there's no saying that a foreign screen has to look like a 5 or 5S. It's, I'm sure that Apple could still adopt a a thinner size and still get away with making a perfectly valid product. But I think there's demand out there. That's the thing. And, and even though, you know, very rarely do people say like, oh, man, I wish I had a thicker, heavier phone. Um, people do still want smaller phones. You know, it's not just a trend of bigger is better, even though that's what the, the companies might make you feel like. But I, I think that there is still a demand for more compact phones that are easier to tote around. Uh, and Apple, you know, the iPod Touch shows that Apple clearly has the ability to do that. So uh, I feel like a 6C or something like that that takes advantage of that and is uh, maybe a little bit less powerful than a, than iPhone 6 but still can hold its own uh, is a pretty good proposition for them. So I, I don't know if it's something they'll do this fall, but I kind of wouldn't be surprised either way at this point. I always, always, always buy the phone, the newest iPhone, the day it comes out, partially because it's a testing device, partially because it's my job and it's fun. I'm an Apple fangirl. Um, I got the iPhone 6, and after using it for four days, I just gave it to my husband because um, you know, I have smaller hands and I couldn't tap target the larger part of the screen. It made tweeting a nightmare. Um, eventually, I ended up getting a 6 Plus, which I absolutely adore just because my job requires me to constantly be texting. So for me personally, I'm never going to go back to um, a phone that's smaller than a 6 Plus, which is ironic with all the smack I've talked about the Samsung Galaxy Note before this. But, um, you know, I do think that there is a market for that smaller phone. And, you know, I think like we sometimes forget just how I guess magical would be the word. It, how magical a really small device that you can carry with you all the time is. Um, I know often when I leave the house, I'm often just carrying a tiny little clutch purse with um, you know, just a few things inside. So I, I definitely think there's a market there. And I certainly hope that Apple will continue to bring that out because I do think this is a, a large market for women. I, I've gotten used to the size of the iPhone 6, but I, I do believe that there will be a, an update to that 4-inch iPhone. I don't think abandon, Apple's going to abandon it. Some people want the smaller phone, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't think Apple wants to force people into a bigger phone, and I don't think they need to. So thank you all for your uh, for your thoughts about that. One more topic to go. Shelly, what do you have? Last week, I was at the American Council of the Blind National Convention in Dallas and got to demo a, uh, an indoor navigation app. 
and uh, associated beacons, which made it possible for somebody with no vision or low vision to navigate around the hotel and conference center and have directions that would take them to a meeting room or they could uh, identify things that they were passing along the way, the information desk, the elevators, the restrooms, and so forth. And that project was created by a nonprofit organization. They had to put the beacons in the hotel. They had to get the app developed, and they were on site to make sure that everybody was able to use the app effectively. And I, as somebody who was really excited about iBeacons when they were announced a couple of years ago at WWDC, feel like we're still in the prototype stage with beacons and that all of the exciting applications that were discussed while they exist and while there have been other conferences that have been covered with uh, beacon technology in some way, whether it be social or whether it be navigation related, it feels to me like we're still in kind of a prototype stage and that beacons have not really taken off to the extent that I would have expected or hoped. And Leaving aside my skepticism about uh, marketing-oriented applications, which is something that people were super excited about when Beacons were announced, I'm wondering if you agree with me that Beacons have not quite lived up to their potential yet, and uh, if they haven't, what would you like to see Beacon technology be useful for? Um, I think that the biggest thing that I would like to see them roll it out for is actually tourism or, or things like our museums and, and stuff like that, education. Um, having traveled a lot in, in other countries and, and recently having gone overseas, that would be a really cool way to integrate sort of wandering around uh, historical sites uh, without providing too much distraction in the way of, you know, placards and the like. So it's nice to sort of like you could key that into your phone. I'd love to see like a keyed in audio guide where as you like walk up to a painting in a museum, it could like automatically know, oh, you're right next to this painting and start reading you like a description or some context or something like that. And uh, I always think that would be a, a super cool way to do it. But I'm, I'm a little skeptical any of that will happen just because the marketing angles seem like those are where the money is. And that's the thing that drives so much of the development here. Um, but at the same time, that's kind of a tricky one because people get inundated with that sort of things. And we all saw we've all hopefully seen Minority Report where it's just like ads popping at you every minute as you walk past because they know everything about you. So uh, I feel like I'm worried that's where it's headed because that's where the money is, but I'd rather see it uh, used for sort of interesting intellectual, educational tourism kind of uses. I, I think for us at Giant Space Cat, one of the, the really exciting uses of iBeacon technology when it first came out is um, we looked at it for Disney Infinity slash Skylander style toys, um, which are just money makers. If you're out there and you're a parent, I'm sorry for all the money Disney and Skylanders has taken from your bank account. So we looked at that technology. Um, the conclusion we had after you know getting getting some iBeacons and like experimenting with it is it's just not there yet. So you know I think it's a, a topic beyond clockwise. Like the the technical challenges involved with that. When the iPhone six came out with the NFC chip inside of it, I think it's important to note that Apple has not opened up that um, you know that that hardware to developers. You know presumably because it. Could be an attack on um, it's an attack vector for you know secure financial transactions. So um, for me, if you're you're asking me like Brianna, the developer, why do you think this hasn't taken off? I think it's because the technology is expensive and it's a little quirky. Um, it sounds like you had an experience where they they got it working, which is that sounds great. Um, and maybe it's worth another look from me. Uh, but I just, I think it didn't take off because it wasn't ready for prime time. So I was in San Diego a couple of weeks ago and I walked into, 
uh, the Petco Park, the Padres Stadium, for a baseball game. And as I walked in the gates, my uh, my Apple Watch actually tapped me on the wrist, and I looked down, and it was the MLB Stadium app saying, "Welcome to Petco Park. Here is some information. Uh, you can check into the game and get." deals and stuff like that and that was all iBeacons um, and it was one of those moments where I thought wow this is this is an example of a partner uh, Major League Baseball that worked with Apple and thought this would be cool technology to deploy in their in their stadiums because it, it you know they can take advantage of knowing where you are and offer you deals and sell you food and things like that and uh, coupons for the gift shop and uh, I thought it was great actually I thought it was really awesome that that was a, a super targeted localized uh, thing that was coming out of an app because of an iBeacon it's it's like an infrastructure thing I, I feel like it just it's, it, it's harder to do this because it re- requires deploying hardware it requires software it's just going to be hard uh but i hope uh i do hope that it continues uh kind of a slow build because i think that's going to be what's required and i would like to see it succeed because i really like the idea i think what Bree said about the expense of the beacons is absolutely relevant because i talked to the guy who installed this at the sheraton in dallas and i said so are you going to leave those beacons here is that going to be something he said no no those were twenty dollars a piece i have to take my 60 beacons to the next convention that i'm covering so it's not like just a, a freebie technology that somebody writes an app to support. Obviously, there's quite a lot of development costs associated with building the apps that that do the custom functions as well. But it seems like the hardware cost is a big issue. And to be honest, the demos that I experienced and watching people get go around the conference center, they weren't perfect. And there was something of a learning curve because there was an audible component to the indoor navigation as well. And people had to understand, does this tone indicate where I am relative to my destination and how do I correct, course correct and that sort of thing. So there, there's a learning curve and there's an expense that uh, makes it feel like we haven't arrived at prime time yet. And I'm just impatient for prime time, I guess. I'm stomping my feet, hoping that the beacons that do what I want them to do uh, will arrive yesterday. Well, that's four topics. Thank you all for another excellent episode of Clockwise. Brianna Wu, always nice to have you here. Thank you very much. And Shelley Brisbane, thank you so much for being on again. You're welcome. It was fun. Dan, we did it. We Another made it one in the books. Yep, that's right. Uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to Clockwise. Uh, we will see you next week. And until then, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. Bye.